are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Isha. Today, we have Camille Walsh, the author of the book Racial Taxation, to talk to us about education, funding, and the racist aspect of education in America. So when I first heard about you was when I met you at the MMT conference last year. It was a very illuminating presentation where you talked about what taxpayer money meant and why we should use public money. And then I got your book, Racial Taxation. Lots of new information. Let's get started. What's wrong with the idea of taxpayer money? First, let's just start with what does it mean to be a taxpayer? And I think taxpayer money stems from this identity category of taxpayer that has for so long been, I think, naturalized and assumed and sort of unproblematic in the way that uh, there's a whole school of critical tax theory that just looks at the study of, of tax policy and the tax law and through the lens that it's often seen as non-discriminatory because it's neutral language. But one thing that law has taught us in the last hundred years is that really effective tool for implementing discrimination, in some cases more effective because it's more persuasive. It, it provides more of an alibi for the discrimination that's happening or the inequality that's happening. So taxpayer comes with this built-in like, oh, it's just, it's just how much you pay in taxes. It's just this neutral category. It's just a fiscal term. It's a financial term. It's a budgetary term. And when you dive down even just under the surface, it's an incredibly difficult and um, unwieldy category to try to identify in the first place. So even just from the framework of how would you identify who a taxpayer is, <laughs> trying to figure out if you know a nine-year-old who takes some pocket money to go buy candy and pay a sales tax on the candy at the corner shop, are they a taxpayer? <laughs> um, or the 70-year-old housewife who's worked at home her whole life and raised children and grandchildren um, but never done the outside, you know, labor that she's paid like social security taxes on. Is she a taxpayer? Um, there's so many categories in between that identify the gaps in that language that even from the beginning, we can see there's some problems with the category. And I think that's why law, and you can even see this just literally in the writing of the constitution, right? You don't actually have rights because you're a taxpayer. You might have rights as the person in some cases, in the 14th Amendment and elsewhere, you might have rights as a citizen or a resident. Nowhere do you get rights by being a taxpayer because it's such a difficult category to identify. It's not that the law is super progressive. It's just that it's a hard category to pin down. So we start from there, and then you look at how it's been deployed and how it's been deployed really since the 19th century, since before that, but definitely since the 19th century, has been in the service of exclusion. It's been in the service of keeping out people of color, keeping out women, making claims to resources and entitlements on the basis of being a taxpayer for most of U.S. history has meant making claims that other people should not get resources, benefits, entitlements, protections. So I think we want to interrogate it more because of that legacy and that history. So when we say taxpayer money or taxpayer funds, I, I can definitely understand why it sounds like a good populist sort of way of describing public money. But because it's tied to this identity category, I think I encourage people to disaggregate them and to, and to think about the public because public is a really expansive category. Uh, public is really one of those rare identity categories that's pretty hard to identify exclusivities inside it, whereas taxpayer is pretty easy to identify uh, who might be out. I remember with your presentation, you mentioned early on there was like efforts for integration, and you mentioned something called the Parents and Taxpayer Association. Uh, can you explain that? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't talk a ton about those associations in the book, but there are a lot of these spring up a lot in the South in different communities. And so in a lot of cases, they become like more localized groups that are usually pushing back against desegregation on behalf of white parents and quote unquote taxpayers in those communities or sometimes in those states. And, you know, they, again, they premise their argument on this idea that both they are taxpayers, 
but also there's this implication that the people whose children are uh, perhaps going to be integrated in the school with their, their children, people of color, are somehow not taxpayers or are lesser taxpayers. And there's no, you know, there's, they, don't, they don't marshal evidence about this. They treat it as a natural given. They just treat it as an assumption that they can then base their, their arguments and their, and their policy demands on. I think there's also this interesting connection between the way that the claims, when I was looking through the archives and writing this book, I found the the language, the identity language of taxpayer a lot, but I also found quite a few examples of homeowner um, language that was definitely intertwined very closely and parent, right? Rights as a parent, rights as a homeowner, rights as a taxpayer. Again, none of these categories are things that like the constitution grants you rights based on, but there's this sense that symbolically that's who is, you know, quote unquote, supposed to get the benefits and the resources and the, uh, the redistribution from the state. And it's amazing how people can sort of unproblematically place themselves in those categories and place other people outside of those categories as though they are not parents or though they are not, whether they're homeowners or renters, as though they don't have an attachment to the place that they're in. Um, and of course, as though they have no connection to economic life because they're, you know, maybe they don't pay property taxes or maybe in the last year they paid $5 less in income taxes than you did, right? It makes no, it makes no sense. This idea about the taxpayer, it came out right after slavery, right? I mean, it, there's a great book by Robin Einhorn, American Taxation, American Slavery, that looks really at um, not the same story I'm looking at because I, I look at it through the lens of uh, public schools specifically, mm-hmm. but that looks at taxpayer rebellions in the context of white taxpayer rebellions and um, assumptions of entitlement around property uh, and specifically around slavery and the idea of, you know, like taxes on slavery or tax, like, there's this whole era of taxpayer identity that's pretty intertwined with propping up slavery and protecting uh, the profits of slavery as an institution that definitely undergoes some shifts in the Civil War. But you can see it emerge in different contexts and in different ways afterwards, right? It, it doesn't maintain quite the same trajectory, but it, it it's still there. So I think the through line you know, probably people have been complaining about taxes for millennia, like since there have been tiny, tiny tax collectors going around from village to village. But in the U.S., it's been always really intertwined with racial capitalism. Right after slavery, there was a Freedmen's Bureau, and they had some kind of black community schools, right? Right, right. And then the Freedmen's Bureau ended that operation, and we got this backlash about not using taxpayer money there. Um, you want to talk about that? So I think one of the things that you see is that the rise of property tax finance local schools, it was not inevitable. It didn't, it didn't have to be necessarily the outcome um, post-Civil War. It didn't have to be the way that public education in the U.S grew up, I think it's one of the fatal flaws that if I could go back in time and change, I would, because I think it's caused an incredible amount of harm um, and inequality. And, and I think that in terms of, honestly, higher education as well as K-12 education. So at the end of the Reconstruction Era and even beyond, there was this push to consider how to fund schools throughout the country, because the common school, just even the idea of going to like grade school, right, elementary school, and then maybe you have a few people go to like higher grades than that, right? It wasn't that it was always a predictable part of, of American life for, for really most people in most socioeconomic classes. And they emerged pre-Civil War in this very haphazard kind of ad hoc local way. They might be funded by, you know, taxes on liquor or taxes on the lottery or gambling, you know, very, very random and definitely local taxes. But in the wake of the Civil War, there was a sense that, um, you know, progress was happening. There were railroads. There was more connection than ever before. And, the, you know, as a lot of historians have written, this was now a nation rather than a union of states. And so there was this sense of like, okay, how do we how do we educate the population for this emerging industrial shift that we're undergoing? 
And so there's something called the Blair Bill that was proposed and very nearly, very, very close to um, voted in. Uh, it was, I think, reintroduced multiple times in the 1870s and 1880s. And it would have created essentially a federal fund for common schools for K through 12 education, rather than having it premised on state and, and primarily on local funding. Because that bill did not pass and any similar bill did not pass, what ended up happening is the, the sort of system that a lot of border states like Maryland and Virginia and other states had been using, again, in this sort of ad hoc way, which was these local property taxes, local taxes in the community, which even in some cases, right, if it was a really small community, it could sort of work as long as there was pretty minimal mobility in the community, had some funds of its own. It very quickly with the rise of urbanization and industrialization stopped really functioning in the way that maybe it had worked for really small towns in the you know 1810s. So people in other communities that were building schools just borrowed the same models, right? The same school board model, the same local property tax model. And as soon as they did that, of course, they overlaid the structures of racism on top of it. So the structures of segregation, of course, were layered on top of any effort to provide schools, but the structures of keeping funds either separate or like usually separate, right? Separating the taxes um, into categories of black taxes and white taxes and and literally in some states saying okay well black taxes will be the only taxes you know quote-unquote black taxes which we can problematize um, will be the only taxes that can fund black schools and quote-unquote white taxes will be the only taxes that can fund white schools and those structures really despite the fact that they took away the classification of taxes as black or white those same structures are still what are funding most schools today and, and that, I think, is a deeply problematic historical legacy because we've never actually gone back and interrogated um, in any way whether or not that structure is effective or whether or not that structure still carries with it the structures of, of racism that were, that were intertwined with it from the beginning. In the 1970s, I can't remember this case off the top of my head, but the Supreme Court ruled that you can't have kids go across districts in order to be more integrated. So you had to, quote, unquote, integrate within that narrow school district. And so that kind of solidified the de facto segregation. So can you talk about, like, what that case was and what happened after that? Sure, sure. Um, so I think you're talking about Milliken versus Bradley. Maybe? Yes, that's exactly uh, yeah. what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. And there's also a case from Colorado Keys. There's a couple of cases around the same time, but Milliken is the big one um, out of Detroit in 1974. So it was the year after San Antonio v. Rodriguez, which I talk about in the book. And really in the Milliken case, it's, I think of, you know, a lot of, a lot of scholars traditionally might have described Milliken as the first big split on the Supreme Court in a couple decades in a school segregation case, right? Because it was a 5-4 ruling. Of course, we're very used to those now. But in school segregation cases from Brown onward, the court was super careful to be unanimous in every verdict. And, you know, part of my argument is I think the Rodriguez case the year before, which was also a 5-4 ruling, was actually the first split because it was about segregation, but it was about segregation intertwined with public finance of schools and, and the racist uh, inequality in the public finance of schools. So in Milliken and Detroit, you had a very actually similar case to Rodriguez in terms of the inequalities between the inner city schools in Detroit, which were primarily um, students of color and these like really wealthy white suburbs outside of Detroit and Michigan that were predominantly white and very well funded. But what you were dealing with in the Milliken ruling was essentially the use of busing and other mechanisms to provide inter-district remedies, like crossing district lines. And it's, it's, it's a disturbing case to me in part because it, it essentially says that school districts are not just bureaucratic constructions. They, you know, there's this language that the justice uses. I think it might be Powell again. I can't remember. But he talks about school districts as, you know, very significant in their own right and how, like, you can't just take them apart. And they have this, like, this importance and this legacy and this, like, essentially... I think they hold school districts at a higher plane or a higher level of respect and uh, care 
than they do students of color in the city in the case, right? Because it, it becomes about how dare we do something like this to a school district and just decimate the school district. Better to leave the school finance structures intact, which leaves students in poorer or lower income communities basing their school funding on property taxes with those same resource inequalities they've had uh, for generations, really, at that point. Oh, yeah. Even last year, um, they did, like, somebody did a picture of schools in Detroit versus Gross Point. And I'm not kidding, there's a high school in Gross Point that looks like a castle. And yeah. in Detroit, they have like water flooding on the ground. Yeah. I mean, it's horrifying and it's, it's one of those. <laughs> I will put a picture in the those... description so you guys yeah. understand the difference. <laughs> well, and it's one of those things that like people were writing this in the, in the 1970s and the 1950s and the 1930s. Um, the examples of the like outrageous inequalities between schools that were literally just across town. You know, I mean, thankfully, like, photography helped when document some of that evidence, but it's just always been there and always been treated as a natural system of sort of, uh, as the court kind of says in Rodriguez, they basically say, well, you could just move to a richer district, you know, your fault for basically only being able to afford to live in a poor or low income uh, tax based district. It's distressing. While austerity measures may seem neutral on its face, let's talk about the broader issue of people using austerity to increase racial inequality. How does taxpayer money aid with that kind of austerity measures? Yeah, um well, so I look at I look at how the category of taxpayer gets used by different groups, but it definitely gets used in very different ways by different groups. And because it's an identity category that purports to provide access to respectability and power and resources, um, you know, everyone sort of tries to to claim their way into it. And and you know, as I would argue, everybody pretty much has a claim on the identity. I mean, it's, it's just an identity that if you've ever participated in economic life in any, in any way, if you're not two years old, you're probably a taxpayer. It, it's just how people are defining it. That's the question. So y- you can see uh, communities of color advocating on behalf of their communities, sometimes as a very communitarian, like, look, as a community, we've made this symbolic contribution to taxes. And so as a community, we're requesting these right, these resources. And you can sometimes see the claims being made very individually, like, you know, I've sort of paid my dues and this is supposed to be what I get out of this system. And I, you know, sort of a hope that there's some, there's some level of fairness in the system. But then a lot of what I found in the archives in terms of claiming this identity was really defense of white supremacy. It was whites, primarily whites, writing to the Supreme Court, um, writing op-eds, giving speeches, talking about how uh, their tax dollars, it's sort of always an assumption that tax resources or taxpayer dollars, quote unquote, belong to uh, white people to distribute and to, and to utilize and to benefit from. And this just cavalier assumption that, that, that they're the ones who provide those resources. And it's, it just, it's embedded um, throughout almost every letter that claims taxpayer identity or every op-ed that claims taxpayer identity and, and is sort of anti-segregation or anti-desegregation, sorry, that is a sort of a defense of segregation. They're often, especially by the late 1960s, because they start to couch it a little less in really blatant racism, right? In the 1950s and early 1960s, there was just quite, quite a lot of really explicit racism. And then they start to couch it in well, it's just that I'm a taxpayer and I've paid taxes into the school district and I don't want my district to be, you know, to, to be run down or to have this and that happen or to have my child bust somewhere else. And, you know, basically like I've built this school, which of course, I mean, this is a history podcast. Like, of course, as a historian, when I came across those in the archives, it was so mind blowing because, you know, you move to a neighborhood five years ago and you, you think you built the school that's been there for 50 years <laughs> like you really didn't and the lack of humility in the identity of sort of claiming that you're that you're the taxpayer that counts that you're the person that counts and that and that those resources should flow to you 
exclusively and primarily and should definitely not be equalized or in any way redistributed to other groups that you think are not full taxpaying citizens, whatever that means. Yeah, that's a through line throughout the book. So why do you think there was so much opposition? Was it because people feared that their kids' school was going to get lower funding? Like, what caused the large opposition? I mean, I've even, I'm looking at some old articles, and even like Brooklyn school districts had like multi day protests against integration and, and things like that. So, oh, yeah. what was the fear that the parents felt? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure I can put myself in their shoes really, but I can say that I think a lot of it was stemming from deeply embedded and historically taught generational racism, right? That there was a, a knee-jerk fear. Um, and you can see this in housing, in, in residential segregation and, and reactions to that. And you can see it in schools in particular. Um, I think that fear becomes magnified in a slightly different way in schools because, and you can see this in the South, in the wake of Brown for a very brief time, there's a great book by Serena Mayeri, The Strange Career of Jane Crow, where she talks about uh, some of the measures that the South took to react to Brown through the, lens, through the lens of sort of, we must protect white girls at all costs from being in a room with African-American boys. The, the, the idea that in schools there was not only racial mixing, but there was racial mixing across genders was, you know, sort of the, <laughs> the thing that sparked the deepest white supremacist fears. And, and not just in the South, but elsewhere as well. And I think you see these protests across the country that emerge out of racism. Now, I think there's another through line that also happens that's tied to economic resources. And those, those things can definitely overlap. And in some cases, they might even be separate, right? There are a few letters from people who are like, you know, I was, I was down with desegregation. And then I saw the school that my kid would be sent to. And I was really upset because the school was really run down and lacked resources and didn't have enough textbooks and maybe had, you know, water on the floor and not enough teachers. And, and so there's some concern even among the Supreme Court when they're deciding Brown versus Board of Education. I think Justice Jackson writes about this in his papers. There's some concern that if you don't equalize resources and you only implement desegregation without any sort of attention to equality, then you... It, then it's much easier actually to spark the backlash that comes, right? That a lot of that backlash comes and it would come no matter what from racism, but a lot of it also can stem from the added clear economic and resource inequality between schools that makes people sort of scramble to get the best, the best resources and the best facilities for their children. Uh, Michael DeMoss, who's an education scholar, uh, talks about he calls it white resource hoarding, essentially, but this idea of sort of, it's a scarcity model, right? There's not enough. Clearly, there are schools that are really poorly funded and schools that are really well-funded. And so you see a lot of these white parents advocating against desegregation because they want to keep the well-funded schools for themselves and their children. Yeah, a few years ago, um, I remember Samantha B and Jason Jones, who live on the Upper West Side, kind of made that same argument <laughs> about their mm -hmm. kids' school. But for me, during the MMT presentation, the slide that shocked me is the, with the picture with the KKK and where they talked about tax, don't spend our taxpayer money. Um, can you explain the context about that? Yeah, I mean, that particular picture was from um, Jefferson County Board of Education. And I can't remember if that was See, I'm going to guess the wrong state, but I, I, have, an, I have an impulse. I think I'm 90% right, but I won't say the state. It's a picture of a Klan rally, and one of the signs that people in Hoods is holding up says, we pay our taxes, why can't we have our rights? And it, this gets at something else that definitely comes out through a lot of the documents and letters and things that I found in the archives, which was, again, the sort of idea that there's only one category of people that are taxpayers. And so all of the claims made by people of color when they're sort of trying to assert taxpayer status in order to get some, some base level of resources or equality or fairness from courts or from school boards often falls on deaf ears because 
it's it's code for whiteness. It's it's code for it, it's a sort of neutralizing code to talk about claims of exclusion that keep others out and that make sure that only only your rights matter and your definition of rights matters and that taxpayer status is somehow a reciprocal relationship with the government where you pay in and you get the spending out directed to you and to things you care about. It seems like it's like a consumer model as opposed totally. to uh, the government being there to ensure basic rights. And it's, and it's not a product you buy, I guess. <laughs> exactly. And I, and this goes back to that idea of like, I was always blown away by the people that, you know, saying that they built the school with their tax dollars with it because they're a tax, you know, they've moved there five years ago, their kid's like four years old. <laughs> they didn't build the school. But I think this is what appealed to me also about um, seeing the connections between my work and MMT, which was that the idea that there's this relationship that's super easily traceable between taxing and spending that you, you, you know, spend some sales taxes here and you like, and then you move to a new state and you pay some in ta- income tax and maybe property tax and that goes to some schools, but then you also pay federal income tax and that goes to some other things. And then your mom collects social security and like somehow you think that there's some, some balance sheet through which that all can be, you know, X'd out and zeroed out and returned back to you. It just doesn't work that way. I mean, it can't work that way. There's no functional way for it to work that way. And it doesn't make sense to think of it that way. Exactly. Um, The federal, uh, I mean, I've had so many episodes. I've probably invited everyone from the MMT conference already. (laughs) Like you're the last one. Um, <laughs> but yes, the federal government is a sovereign spending, sovereign entity. So it can create money whenever it wants. And it has nothing to do with your taxes. Right. The taxes are there to control inflation. But right. so I think that having the MMT idea will help stop the spread of this toxic, I don't know, like some sort of accounting at a small business kind of thought of government, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Despite our best efforts at declaring ourselves a sovereign entity to issue currency, we have been advised by our lawyers to cease and desist. I'm joking, we don't have any lawyers, but we need them. Now. So please go to historically.substack.com and sign up for our newsletter and podcast. Or if you're a lawyer and are okay working pro bono, please contact us via email. In your book, you mentioned that I forgot when it was, but there was a case where basically they said that you don't actually have a right to education in America. And it was through the lens of integration. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, that that case is actually, and I don't to give a little backstory, this is how I kind of got into this project. <laughs> like, I don't know, many years ago now, I was in law school. Um, so I got a law degree. And then I went on to get a PhD in U.S. history. And when I was in law school, my second year, I was taking a constitutional law class. And we were, our textbook had this whole chapter on equal protection and all of these cases from the 1950s and 60s, like famous, really defining cases around um, civil rights and equality. And the last case in the chapter was this case, San Antonio versus Rodriguez in 1973. And that was that 5-4 case I mentioned. And that case, a group of um, incredibly, basically a group of parents who recognized that their schools in the neighborhood of San Antonio called Edgewood were really poorly resourced, poorly funded, but the state of Texas actually had property tax caps. So because their neighborhood was also really low income, even if they taxed themselves at the maximum you know, capped rate allowed by the state, they could never raise enough money to actually fund their schools at an appropriate level and that the school, you know, the example school in the litigation was, of course, of course, called Alamo Heights. It was <laughs> predominantly white and it was across town in San Antonio. And of course, it's very wealthy and more than able to fund all kinds of programs and bilingual education for their like, you know, 20 Spanish speaking students, whereas Edgewood had, you know, think a majority. I mean, it was, the inequality was so incredibly stark between the two schools. And these parents brought this lawsuit and it it was a, I think a 90, something like in the 90s, 96% maybe Latinx. And then, you know, uh, several percentages African-Americans, maybe it was 90% Latinx and 6% African-American, but it was overwhelmingly students of color at the Edgewood schools and overwhelmingly white uh, in the 90, maybe 96, 98%. At Alamo Heights. 
so we're reading this case and the court rules, they, they don't talk about race at all, basically. I mean, they sort of lay out the demographics, but they don't really mention it again. And it was only when I went to the archives later and started to research it on my own in graduate school that I realized, oh, the, the claimants, the family in the case, or the families in the named family, Rodriguez, their lawyer made the argument that it was racial discrimination. <laughs> the court just ignored it. So they don't even talk about racial discrimination in the case, even though it's clearly present. They talk about two other sort of really defining precedents, and they set both precedents in this case. So one of the precedents was whether or not inequality on the basis of wealth, in other words, discrimination on the basis of your income, low income, I guess high income people would probably try to use this, but whether or not that was something that could trigger heightened scrutiny for equal protection under the 14th Amendment. And this was something that the court had already been doing in other cases, right? They had ruled that, okay, if there's a really high filing fee for divorce, for example, that discriminates against people on the basis of wealth and excludes them from the capacity to make like a really fundamental choice they might need to make in life, like leave a marriage or other cases around criminal defense and the ability to access a transcript of your of your court hearing, right? That there are all these instances throughout the 60s, also coming from the poll tax rulings, like that essentially the court had said, uh, we're going to ask some questions if you're discriminating against people in a way that excludes them because of their income level. So there were a lot of observers by the time of Rodriguez who thought that the court was just going to say, well, you know, this is a protected class, um, like the court had sort of created protected classes in its 14th Amendment jurisprudence over the course of the 20th century. Um, the paradigmatic one is race. But, you know, they had sort of continued to refine their 14th Amendment jurisprudence. So a lot of people thought they would do that. In the Rodriguez case, they said, actually, no. I mean, if we did that, we'd have to do it about everything. So we're going to just shut the door. <laughs> they, just, <laughs> they just said. Uh, and, and also, I think it's important to remember, and I talk about this in the book, that that case was in 1973. And Justice Powell, who wrote the majority opinion in that case, when I looked through all his papers and documents and some of his past speeches and things, and writings, he was a fervent anti-communist, like fervent, very, he, very concerned about it. I also um, talk about yeah. this, but he wrote the Powell memo, which I call is the corporate, I, I, like last year I actually had a presentation, which I call the corporate jihad, in that yeah. he was like, oh, college campuses are like brainwashing kids against corporations and corporations need to fight back. And Exactly. So one thing that's really interesting about uh, sorry, I'm, I keep saying it's interesting. I, I should find something <laughs> else. <laughs> uh, you also talk about in the 60s, Louisiana and Virginia had this kind of workaround called a grant in aid program where they would give vouchers for white kids to go to private schools. Um, right. And that sounds a lot like charter schools, but can you talk yep. about what happened there and how it evolved to charter schools? Yeah, I mean, I, I am not as much of a historian of charter schools, so I can't necessarily trace the evolution completely. But I think the evolution, as far as I understand it, is or just, just talk that, about the grant and aid program that you wrote about. <laughs> yeah, they, they essentially, like I was saying about the, the Jane Crow example, they were trying to find all these workarounds to essentially get out of any form of desegregation. And so I think that the biggest example I talk about is in Prince Edward County in Virginia, where there was this, there was really almost an entire generation for several years of, um, of African-American students in that community who were left without schools because they shut the public schools completely. That was the most one of the most extreme examples, but it wasn't the only place that that happened. Um, but even in places where they didn't shut, public schools, they sort of use some of the same tools. So in Prince Edward County, they did this thing where they created vouchers, they essentially wrote these checks, like the WCP is like rushing over there to try to try to stop them and issue injunctions because they're writing checks from, again, public money, like the local property tax fund that everybody had paid into. And they're distributing them to white families and specifically to poor white families. And this is like a really significant thing that we still see today in a lot of these school movements around school choice or school vouchers, which is that if you're opposed to public schools being desegregated, uh, if you're opposed to public schools being places with really robust learning communities drawn from the entire community, you know, filled with students and, and 
getting some sort of some sort of funding based on the student population, hopefully, then you want to draw as many students away from that, particularly as many white students away from that as you can. And so especially in the 60s and 70s, what they were doing was trying to ensure that poor whites would not go to the public schools if they were open so that they could prevent those public schools from becoming integrated. So essentially, not just even white flight, but like complete exodus from the public schools in certain communities was the sort of strategic goal of um, some of the white supremacist leaders in those areas, right? To, to make sure that the public schools, if they still existed, only had African-American students because usually they were the, the whites were usually running the school boards. So that was another key part of really this whole story is throughout the decades, they were the ones distributing the tax funding. So whether or not the tax funding was drawn from the entire community, it would still end up somehow magically always going to only the white schools. So they're trying to keep the whites from attending the, the integrated public school to prevent integration from happening in any way. Why didn't in other in almost every other country the schools are run federally? Like why didn't the federal government step in and say, "Hey, you guys can't handle this. We're gonna set up, we're gonna federalize all the schools." Yeah, I mean, great question. I think it's a, that's one of the fundamental questions. You know, I'm working on a book right now that is around higher education and this question of um, state state identity and sort of state pride and state residency and all, all of these things that we take for granted that are really just rooted in where the funding historically came from, right? It's not even true for higher education. It comes from the state. I mean, at least with K-12 education, it is still largely true in a lot of places that the predominant source of funding is still local uh, funding and then some state funding and then a little bit of federal funding. But I think the, the backlash against this sort of perception of local control, which is of course, a system of control that serves those who have had historical power, like white people on these school boards who uh, had control of the purse strings for decades and generations. There was, I think, such a backlash against that because our system, and, and I don't even know if I would say it was fully intentional in every place, right? It, it emerged because we're a geographically far-flung set of different communities in different states and different cities. And so when these common schools began to emerge, it was perhaps easier to do it locally. And in a lot of countries, they've created a really robust system of federally funded education that um, I deeply wish we had here and I think would solve a lot of problems here. Um, but historically, we've gotten really entrenched in local and state governments and budgets, which, of course, are not monetary sovereigns and cannot spend what they need to spend. And so we tie that funding into this concept of control. So even the idea of federal funding for K-12 education, which should be a no-brainer, like federal funding for healthcare, right? It should be a no-brainer, but it becomes a place for advocates of states' rights and local control to articulate their claims. I'm a big advocate for federal control also because, for example, in India, People go to private schools, but a lot of those private schools, they can't teach some of the junk that they teach here because there's one federal syllabus and they don't have the right to like change that syllabus. So they'll have to teach proper math. And here you look at some of the, even in the public schools, like I saw a book where they said, Indians moved when the white persons <laughs> yeah. Yeah, came yeah. to Plymouth Rock. And it's like, no one yeah. moved. And so I am also an advocate of complete control too, because like I said, some of it's the kids that hurt with this kind of garbage being taught there instead of actual history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a tricky question because I think I am generally just always more in favor of federal authority because historically it's generally done a slightly better job of protecting different groups. But there's also this sort of, you can see in certain moments and like with the current administration, for example, like would you want them to write the syllabus that was required at every school? Probably oh, not, right? So, so it becomes like a, uh, how do we, how do we like, it doesn't have to be, I think control and funding actually don't even have to be completely linked, but I think you could definitely create minimums and benchmarks that are, that are reasonable and that don't allow a, one administration to sort of rewrite the entire federal syllabus. I, that, that's my only sort of 
worry about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I like for me, what I've noticed with some of the textbooks is that Texas, like everyone writes for Texas and, and so then it's actually trickling down to other schools where people totally. don't want their kids to learn that Indians moved. <laughs> totally. No, exactly. I mean, the Texas school board textbook issue is a big problem. Yeah. Did better funding come with integration? Uh, yeah, I think I know what you're saying. Um, so the, like, the depressing answer is not really. And in fact, um, in a lot of cases, one of the big changes that happened, and I mentioned this a little bit in the book, but other other historians of um, education, Charles Payne and others have written about this, is, you know, they basically just fired all the Black teachers and Black principals. And uh, this is one of the things that W.B. Du Bois was concerned about when he was editor of The Crisis. And he was concerned about focusing on, focusing on school cases as the realm to upend segregation in general in the U.S. And his concern was this question of sort of who ends up in front of the room teaching kids and what kinds of narratives they end up teaching those kids. And if, if all the black teachers get fired and suddenly it's a bunch of white teachers teaching kids and, you know, I think he used the words truth and empathy and uh, something else, it, like that, that you may end up with a worse experience for some of those children. So it's not that that happened across the board. And um, by the late 1960s, you saw integration happening in a much more widespread way, finally, right? It took took like 10 to 14 years for it to really start to happen at all. But once it started happening, finally, for a good 20 years, it was kind of an active goal and expectation um, and an ongoing controversy. So it, it did mean that schools might have gotten different levels of funding once they sort of settled into a pattern. And that pattern was probably still with a white principal and white, right? Like it was probably still much more white dominated. Um, but in the late 1980s, the court pulled back on a lot of its rulings around requiring schools to sort of prove that they had uh, affirmatively taken measures to desegregate and that they were remedying past legacies of discrimination. And so what you've seen since then is a deep, deep return to segregation. Um, it's just de facto now. It's not, nobody's written in it into state law anymore. Uh, they've learned that lesson. So instead they just structure it through residential segregation, through tracking systems, through charter schools, through all kinds of other means of ensuring that sort of you have pretty heavily segregated schools in many, many parts of the country now um, that are just the norm. And so the funding flows to those schools in proportion often to the income base of the communities. And unfortunately, that means that a lot of the predominantly student of color population schools are also predominantly low income or or have a low income tax base in the community that limits the resources that those schools get. So if I'm a concerned parent and I'm worried about the state of my kid's public school, like where should I start, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's a great question. Um, huh. You know, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. I think I think the answer is just to defend public schools, <laughs> to look for a solution that addresses the problems for as many people as possible. Because I would say for most people, if you're a concerned parent, then your kid's probably going to be just fine. Because in the end, actually having a parent who has the, the time and the bandwidth to sort of investigate avenues for um, assisting their public school or working with a public school, and there's all kinds of ways you can like volunteer and support and things, but your your kid's gonna gonna be fine okay <laughs> yeah I, I don't say that as like any kind of expert on parenting no I just don't say worry yeah. I don't have any kids I I have my <laughs> I have nieces and they go to Guilford public schools so far I've been kind of monitoring what they're learning not mm -hmm. so bad um I yeah. had uh, I'm sorry Guilford public schools in Connecticut this is not a dig on you <laughs> um but I did kind of one thing I did mind is they told my niece Thomas Edison invented the light bulb but actually the light bulb ancient Egypt had light bulbs which they had like potassium like, like wires sticking yeah and so that was my one problem um in the nice. eurocentricism <laughs> yeah yeah it's totally I mean I definitely have given my nephew you know books over the years <laughs> like he just graduated quote-unquote graduated from high school this week over some sort of social distancing um, graduation. 
oh yeah last week i gave my yes my, it was my niece's eighth birthday party yesterday and so i gave her um socialist fairy tales because oh, nice. <laughs> in all the fairy tales you have the king and he's kind of a yeah. good person but that's not reflective of reality by yeah. the way um yeah. what is next for you like what are you planning on working on and are you going to come yeah. to the mmt conference if we have one this year <laughs> um yeah i mean i I'd love to. I don't. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen this year with conferences. I had a couple conferences lined up for this year already, and um, have just sort of assumed they won't happen. But I don't know. Um, so what I'm working on right now is this examination of higher education, and it it started also from kind of my inability to just take things for granted. It's sort of like the taxpayer identity thing, where I'm like, well, why does everybody say that? <laughs> like, and when I looked into a little bit of the history of higher education and sort of the writings around it. One thing I found is that this idea of residency in public higher education, and I'm, I'm specifically looking at the history of public higher ed, from community colleges through land-grant universities, through HBCUs, through public research universities. But this idea of residency is just sort of assumed and taken for granted, but it really just kind of emerged in the early 20th century, right? So if you can imagine, especially in places like California and the West, uh, some of our biggest, like California's research universities, public university system is is second to none, but they were a state that was drawing people to them for so many years, right? They weren't going to implement a state residency requirement. Now they have one of the strictest in the country on their, on their schools. And I just find it sort of fascinating. And as I've started to delve into that research, the thing I found is that it's, of course, deeply tied to this idea that parents in the state are the taxpayers who are paying into the state coffers for the decades prior to their little, you know, beloved going off to college and therefore being entitled to this education. It, it, again, they sort of, there's a few Supreme Court cases around it. There's a few other things around it, but they, at, at no point can they really say like, well, this college student has paid all this money in taxes to go to college. Usually up until a few decades ago, that wasn't the case. Now, I think with our college student population, certainly at the school I teach at, that may often be the case that the student has been working on their own for a decade or two or quite a while before going back to school. One thing I'm always curious about, like, so the residency requirements are usually like one year and somehow college students living one year in that state does not count as residency. <laughs> right, right. Oh, no, it's it's uh, it's a thing that I've had students talk to me about before because Washington has the same, a, a number of states has the, have this, but this caveat that if you live in the state for a year for the purposes of education, then you won't get residency. <laughs> so it's so absurd. And it, it also, it fascinates me because kind of like with the taxpayer identity thing where I'm like, but in legal terms, this doesn't make any sense. If you just look at some of the Supreme Court's rulings on um, things like the right to interstate travel, right? It, nowhere in the constitution does it say you have a right to travel between states. But during the Great Depression, there were a series of laws that were, not to pick on California today, but that were enacted in California and probably in other states, but especially in California, that were intended to keep out indigent people. And specifically, they were targeting um, migrants from Oklahoma and Arkansas and the Dust Bowl. Rapes of rat. Yep, exactly. So they were, they were uh, really explicitly targeting those groups to say they couldn't come into California if they were indigent and didn't already have a job and an income and whatever. And the, this case, Edwards versus California, goes after the Supreme Court and the court sort of like has a bunch of different rationales for how they decide because there like there really isn't a place in the constitution that's an obvious location it's like oh it clearly spells out that you have the right to interstate travel but they're sort of all coming back to the same sort of it doesn't make any sense for you to be a citizen of the united states and not be able to freely move between the states and this comes up again later in um, cases around welfare benefits around the ability to file for divorce around voting registration right where over and over again throughout the 60s, 70s, um, and on, but a lot of this happened in the 70s, you have states that are saying, oh, in order to get welfare benefits in our state, you have to live here for like a year. <laughs> you can't get anything really restrictive. And the court has to sort of say, okay, but you're, you're basically telling citizens that they can't be mobile between states. And the thing about college residency is they've basically just carved out an exception for it. Um, and I think it's in deference to the incredible power and sway of universities and, and sort of their, their lobbying power. But also, I think it connects to, in the same way that some of the school desegregation cases that were rooted in law school segregation in the 1960s 
or in the sorry in the 1950s drew on the justice's own experience of being oh well this is what colleges are for this is what universities are for or it's about like my state identity or my law school identity or whatever so yeah the residency requirements really just prop up state budgets as being the appropriate place to look for funding for public universities even though actually now they're not where it's coming from and more of it is coming federally anyway but i think we still have this idea that states, state universities really belong to the states and that there's some sort of proprietary thing that state residents get and that uh, state governments have authority over. And I uh, am interested in the free college for all proposals for so many reasons. And one of them is that I think they could be the, the way that break that we can break down. We can break down this idea that state colleges only belong to the people who happen to be born in that state. Right? What if you're born in Louisiana, but you really want to be a documentary filmmaker and be, go to LA. Like it, it doesn't make any sense that uh, that you're locked out of that unless you have resources. And one final question: How do people find you and learn more about your work? Um, how do you find me? <laughs> good question. I'm not a very good uh, Twitterer, so I have to admit I, I sort of, for my own sanity during during research, I stay kind of off. A lot of social media, but you can definitely email me. I'm at University of Washington Bothell, and so you can, you can Google me and find me. And you can find my my book anywhere. I know it's an ebook. It's called Racial Taxation: School Segregation and Taxpayer Citizenship. Yeah, came out 2018. Well, thank you. I know it took us like a few months to schedule this, but I'm yeah. glad we finally were able to connect. Me too. Thank you. Yep. I will have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Music for this show is done by Rectex. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.